Boom, put boom, boom, A side, B side, what side are you on? All right, welcome back to the A side, B side podcast. What's going on, Adam? Not too much, just surviving and figuring out what's happening in life. Yeah, uh, of course, as of recording this podcast, the world is on hold because we have no idea who our next president is going to be at the moment. So it's been a weird, wild, stressful uh, couple of days. So I told my kids this yesterday, and I didn't actually listen to it when I said it out loud, but when the second presidential election ever happened in the U.S. George Washington had to wait two months to find out if he won. True. So two days shouldn't feel that bad. But also, it feels excruciating and horrible. Because, like, this isn't 1781. This isn't where, like, you literally had to cast the ballots and then some dude got on a horse or do that. But because of misogyny was probably a dude who got on a horse and then rode to the Capitol to say, Hey, here's how my friends voted. We are so spoiled by the fact that we can get everything. We get results so quick. Mm -hmm. Like when we go to get a COVID test right now, people are annoyed that it takes 48 hours or six days, depending on what kind of, kind of test you get. But that is, that's how, privileged we are that we get results really quick and this election is not gonna be quick no we might not know the results until uh after our podcast has already been posted so the only thing we can do is just you know keep going i had to show my kids like uh google photos of the folks looking at the hanging chads in 2000 Mm -hmm. because they were like has this ever happened before i'm like well yeah kind of but in a really weird way yeah we we had people with magnifying glasses depending like looking at ballots saying did they push hard enough for this to be a real vote so we made it through that and it wasn't like i'm not saying it was perfect but we made it through we'll make it through this um but yeah my kids were looking at the the photos on google where it's got like these guys with giant magnifying glasses looking at punch cards and they're like this is how we picked the president i'm like yeah it kind of was <laughs> well aside from um the election i've been watching on stars i think i talked about it last week no i don't think i did talk about it last week because we just kind of jumped into the a side last week um <laughs> yeah because i just started talking and then all of a sudden i was doing my side <laughs> there 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 was no transition. It was that smooth. So I've, I've talked about The Vow, which is on HBO, but now Stars has another version of the show about Nexium, and it's from people on the inside, like the girls or some of the women that were actually in the cult itself, the sex cult part of it. And oh, I wow. mean, I'm telling you, like, HBO is PBS compared to this. Mm. They are graphic. I mean, and it's it's good and it's informative, but it is graphic. And that Keith Ranieri deserved every single one of those 200, uh, 120 years that he received. And I'm interested to see what happens with uh, the actress, Allison Mack. That's, that's how I first heard about it because 
she was famous enough that, that I knew her name. Mm-hmm. And then the news story started talking about, oh, here's this Hollywood actress involved in this potential nefarious business, which is also the name of my emo rock band, Nefarious Business. Ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if anybody wants to look that up. <laughs> but um, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. It's not for the squeamish because mm-hmm. Keith Raniere is a sick, disgusting bastard. Yes, I said it, Mom. Sorry. I mean, but you're not wrong. <laughs> no, he's he's as sick as they come. Yeah, sometimes the truth can't get bleeped out. So I went on to our app to see uh, where people are listening. And I told you I was not sending you the list because you wanted to read all five pages of it. So uh... <laughs> I'm just super excited that people are listening. And I also like saying the names of cities. It's a weird thing. (laughs) What's up to Tel Aviv in Israel? That's really cool. And North Sumatra, Indonesia. Tokyo, Japan. Hey. Romania, Hamburg, Germany. We got some hellos going out there. Also, Adam, I might be saying this wrong. Invergrove? Oh, yeah. Invergrove Heights. Invergrove. Sea Caucus. What's up, Sea Caucus? Sanford, North, uh, North Carolina, Sabina, Ohio, Segoville, Texas, Garland, Texas, Newport News, Virginia, Valley Springs, California, and Buford, Georgia. Hey, y'all. I love that you were like, tell me how to pronounce this, and it was Invergrove, and then you were just immediately into Secaucus. Like, Secaucus <laughs> is a very, like, that word would scare way more people than Invergrove. But I'm from the North, so I know Secaucus. That, that's me is like, oh, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, so, like back home, a lot of the names are like Tanawanda and Skajakwada and, you yeah. know, Chautauqua. So <laughs> I have I have my uh, my Google map set on the Australian lady because she's got a great voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she also doesn't know how to pronounce any Minnesota towns. So recently I was driving south and she's so there's a town called Mankato in Minnesota. But my Google Maps lady was like, Mankato. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. It sounds good. I'll allow it. (laughs) Also, any sources that we talk about today in the podcast will be posted on our website. If you enjoy the show, we would love for you to go like it and, and rate it on Apple. You can follow us, you know, subscribe on Apple, subscribe on Spotify. Also, you can support the podcast on buy me a coffee all of the money used is to keep the show going and for production and promotion of the podcast so we would really really love you i mean we love you anyway but and and sometimes like that means just getting brooke a coffee because she's doing all of the work of editing so (laughs) she needs all of the coffee i do because the coffee like y'all hear our voices but brooke has to deal with my voice a lot more than cut out most of it so it, it's, it's, we should buy her a coffee. <laughs> Suck up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, but it works. <laughs> oh, all right. So I'm going to start first this week. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. Cause I hate starting first. Cause when I start first, we don't do any of this fun talking. I just start talking. <laughs> all right. So we're going to jump into the B side here in just a second. Hey guys, I'm Kelsey. And I'm Taylor. And we are convinced that if you guys are listening and loving this podcast, that you will love our podcast, Morning Mugshot. 
It's a true crime podcast where we cover a new case every Friday. And at the end of our episode, we talk about our thoughts, feelings, and opinions on this week's case. If you guys want to come and be our new besties, we can't wait to hear your thoughts, feelings, and opinions on our cases. So feel free to check us out, Morning Mugshot, on Instagram and anywhere you get your true crime podcast. All right, so this week, oh, real fast, I forgot to mention this earlier, new holiday, I know, new holiday merch launching on the website um, as of this podcast. So yay, there's some cool holiday stuff. Adam, I've even got something special for you on there. You want to see it? You're going to have to go look at it on the website. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. Wow, tease. (laughs) Okay, so for this week's story... I posted a poll on our Instagram, on our Facebook. I sent it out to like friends and family to say, okay, which story should be this week's episode? And the choices were real life Hannibal the Cannibal, Socialite Slayer, and the Internet's First Killer. And overwhelmingly, the winner, the Internet's First Killer. Ah, That's what I voted for. So this week... Is the story of John Edward Robinson Sr., aka John Osborne, aka Slave Master. Wow, that got dark right to the end. Uh huh. He's known as the internet's first serial killer. He made contact with most of his post 93 victims via online chat rooms. So, John Edward Robinson was born December 27th, 1943, in Chicago. He was the third in line of five kids. And we have seen a theme here. John had difficult parents. His father was an alcoholic and his mom was absent a lot of the time. And when she was around, she was a really strict disciplinarian. John had a younger infant brother that he grew very attached to. Well, sadly, his brother fell ill and died and his Mm. mother held him responsible for the death. What? Yeah, I don't know. So in 1957, at the age of 14, he became an Eagle Scout. He joined the Boy Scouts at the age of 14. Were you a Boy Scout or an Eagle Scout or anything? I was not. My father was an Eagle Scout. And I had always been super interested in scouting. My dad would tell me stories about having to camp in the winter in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I got less interested. Ah, yeah. Martin Smith who writes about John Edward, he writes that John traveled to London with a group of scouts who performed for Queen Elizabeth II. He was actually chosen as the only American to represent and to lead 120 Boy Scouts at the Royal Command performance. So you're thinking, oh man, this is going to be a good story, a cool story. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -mm. That sounds very positive so far. Yeah, no, he devolves real quickly. So later yeah, that I know year, better. <laughs> later that year, he involved uh, he enrolled in Quigley Prep Seminary in Chicago. It's a private boys school for boys that are looking to become priests. But he was forced to leave after only one year because of disciplinary issues. Like I said, mm. he devolves quickly. Yeah. So in 1961, John Edward enrolls at Morton Junior College in Cicero. He wants to become a medical x-ray technician, but he dropped out after two years. In 1964, at the age of 21, he moves to Kansas City 
where he meets and marries Nancy Joe Lynch. So the reason that he left Cicero and moved to Kansas is he was accused of embezzling money from the hospital where he worked at in Chicago. Mm. Yeah. So John and Nancy had their first child, John Jr. in 1965. And then they had fraternal twins, Christopher and Christine in 1971. Well, during this time and between the births of his children in 1969, John gets arrested for the very first time. Why? You can probably guess embezzling he took over a hundred thousand dollars from his employer which was fountain plaza x-ray laboratory in august of 1969 he was arrested or excuse me he was found guilty of embezzling thirty three thousand dollars from the medical practice of dr wallace graham where he had worked as an x-ray tech a job that he got because he falsified credentials because remember he didn't finish school Hmm. so he forged documents to become an x-ray tech and now he's embezzling money from all these different places. Dude loves other people's money. Yeah. And you would think, oh, maybe it'll stop there. But no. Mm-mm. Mm. So he received a, a suspended sentence and he got three years probation. And then in 1970, what did he go and do? He violated that probation. He moved back to Chicago without his probation officer's consent. Or knowledge, as a matter of fact, like his probation officer had no idea that he had just packed up and moved. So the reason he moved back was for a job. You would think you would just call up the probation officer and be like, like, I need a job. They got this job for me here. Can I go? And the probation officer would be like, yay or nay, probably yay, if it's going to make you better a person. But he didn't do any of that. So he moves back to Chicago to become an insurance salesman at R.B. Jones Company. Well, to be fair, if he was going to be an insurance salesman, eh, maybe the probation officer would have been like, "Eh, I don't know about that. That means sometimes they make good money, right? Oh, they make good money. Yeah. Yeah, well, whatever. (laughs) Well, the arrests don't stop for John. They just keep on coming. In Mm -hmm. 1971, he's arrested again. Do you want to guess why? Uh, Embezzlement? Yeah, ding, 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 ding. You got it. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) Look at me. I figure things out. (laughs) So the company that he moves to Chicago for doesn't tell his probation officer about he embezzles money from them, R.B. Jones. Mm. I think we have reason he didn't tell probation officer about already. Yeah. So he embezzled money from R.B. Jones and apparently had a couple little side jobs and he embezzles money from these employers as well. So he gets found out and he's ordered to move back to Kansas where he sets up his own business, but he continues to forge documents. <laughs> Forging and embezzlement. Oh man, if only that's where he stopped. So yeah, nice- the, guy, the guy is consistent, if nothing else. I mean, you can plan on him embezzling some money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in 1975, his probation was extended for a second time when he was arrested yet again on charges uh, four counts of security fraud and mail fraud and false representation because he was caught you guessed it forging signatures and letters attempting to claim thousands of dollars through share scams so this led to an investigation of his company by the sec which is the security and exchange commission which they are the ones that kind of look over all the businesses and making sure they're above board mm-hmm. So along with probation, John was fined $2,500. Now we go to 1977. John, in an effort to raise his public profile and cultivate an appearance of like 
being a respectable community family guy, you know, he wanted to be personable and be well liked. He became a scout master. You know, you remember he was an Eagle Scout as a kid. So he legitimately knows right. what to do. Yeah, yeah. It's not easy to be an Eagle Scout. That is that is very hard to do. Plus he had a, a son. So he becomes a scout master. He becomes a baseball coach. He even becomes a Sunday school teacher. I mean, talk about putting it on, laying it on thick, right? Mm-hmm. He also talked his way onto the board of directors for a local charity. And then doing what he does best, he forged a series of doc- uh, letters and documents from the charity's executive director to the mayor of Kansas City, then from the mayor to other civic leaders, all commending John on his wonderful volunteer efforts. Eventually, <laughs> John gets himself an award. It's an award he invented. He gets himself an award. It's the first ever Man of the Year Award. He's so into this that he even throws himself a festive luncheon in his own honor. And he tricked the senator at the time, Mary Gant, into not only attending this festive luncheon in his honor, but presenting him with a plaque for the Man of the Year Award. Damn. Right. So now that his public profile is getting higher and he's getting these awards, and like a lot of times when someone's presented with an award, the newspaper does an article on it, right? So the Kansas As they should. And it's a good thing they did. The Kansas City Star ran a story about the luncheon and they got a bunch of complaints about it because people were selling them that they're like false reporting and they're giving out false information. So the paper is like, whoa, 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 wait, we're just going with the info we've been giving. So they decide to investigate it. They're so, like, hey, we got a press release. Right. Right. So Mark Edwards, excuse me, Mac Edwards was the reporter that was assigned to investigate this whole plaque award luncheon fiasco. So as a result of this investigation, the Kansas City Star is forced to run another story exposing John Edwards and his lengthy criminal record, his embezzlement schemes, everything. Like, I don't understand how this dude didn't think by using his real name and doing all this stuff that people weren't going to be able to track down what he had done in the past. Well, it was hubris and it was the 70s. True. Valid points. Valid points. But think about investigative reporters in the 70s. I feel like that's when they were at their like their peak. Like they were they got a story and they were like they just were like a dog with a bone. They didn't stop. True, but then I'm guessing John from Kansas City didn't think he'd be getting the Woodward and Bernstein treatment. I guess not, because he kept trying to embezzle from every place. So yeah. John Edwards completes his probation in 1979, just in time to get arrested yet again in 1980. Yep, more embezzlement. <laughs> more embezzlement, also check forgery, and felony theft. Now, I know this is a true crime podcast and you're like, okay, but Brooke, where's the murder? Don't worry, it's coming. <laughs> oh, oh boy, is it a coming, okay? <laughs> uh, the, the weird part is like, I was not like that. I was like, this is nice. We're just talking about like white collar crime. Cool. It's just embe- it's just a little embezzling, just a little check foraging. It's, it's just, just a lot of embezzling, you know, it's cool. <laughs> So on December- there's no blood. There's no blood in this episode. It's cool. I'm, I'm into this. 
Oh no, it's it's on its way. <laughs> so on December 30th of <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, there's gotta be some luck. I know. I mean, I mean a guy with night terrors can hope, you know. <laughs> so on December 30th of uh, 30th of 1980, he was fired yet again. He was an employee. He was the employee relations manager at Guy's Foods in Liberty, Missouri. He was ordered to pay back $50,000 to Guy's Food. On December 31st, he pled guilty to stealing a $6,000 check and he faced seven years in prison. So he made a deal with the prosecutor and he served 60 days in jail and received another five years of probation. He served his jail time from May 8th, 60 days, which ended in July of 1982. Once John is released, he forms a bogus hydroponics business and is able to swindle $25,000 from a friend who had hoped to receive like a fast turnaround investment. Look, if it sounds too good to be true. It's too good to be true. It's too good to be true, okay? So his friend was looking for some fast cash and well, he got swindled because the friend actually wanted to use that money to pay for his wife's healthcare needs. Uh, His wife was really sick and he figured, okay, I can take this money and I can turn it around and, you know, put it on her healthcare needs, but he's lost that money. So then John Edward begins inappropriately propositioning his neighbor's wives, not like one or two, but like a bunch of his neighbor's wives. He was just like, you know, shotgun effect. Like, just proposition everybody. We'll see what happens. Right. So many so that he ends up getting into a fist fight with one of the husbands. He also joins a secret sadomasochism cult called the International Council of Masters. And he becomes its slave master. That sounds awful. Right. So as the slave master, some of his duties include luring victims to the gatherings to be tortured. Okay. Let me stop here, Adam. I'm just, I'm just giving you a heads up. This is where we start to get a little bit more graphic. Yeah. No, I've already, I've already half stopped with. (laughs) All right. So. As the slave master, some of his duties include luring victims to the gatherings to be tortured and raped by cult members. Okay, this is where things start to connect, okay? Mm -hmm. So John Edward is sticking to doing what he knows best. He started a couple of fake shell companies, Equi Plus and Equi Two. In 1984, John hired 19-year-old Paula Godfrey he told her that she was going to be working as a sales rep for his fraudulent companies. 19 years old. And I remember being 19 and you're young and you're excited and you're full of trust. And, you know, that's Paula. She told her family and her friends that John was sending her off to train. And according to the Charlie Projects page on Paula, her family members told authorities that John picked her up from her house on September 1st. He was supposed to drive her to the airport. And that was the last that Paula was ever heard from again. Mm. When Paula didn't reach out to her family for a few days, her father contacted the hotel that she was supposed to be staying at because like a good, like a girl does, like a good, you know, I shouldn't say like a good girl. I know most women, if they're traveling out of town, you know, they're, you, you tell someone, here's where I'm staying. Here's my, 
information. Here's how to get in touch with me. And that's what Paula did. Mm-hmm. So Paula's co- father contacted the hotel she was be spo- supposed to be staying at and found out that she never checked in. So Paula's parents contact the police and they file a missing persons report. The police, of course, question the last person known to see her, John Edward Robinson. He denied any knowledge of knowing where she could possibly be. Paula's family received a postmark typewritten letter. It was postmarked from Kansas City. Several days after the report, it was supposedly from Paula. The letter said that it wanted to thank John for his help. And it stated that she was, quote, okay. And she wanted to start over. The letter was full of grammatical errors, uh, grammatical errors, typewritten errors, which her family said was extremely unrealistic for her. Mm -hmm. The letter also stated that she didn't want any contact with her family, which her family was like, yeah, right. Come on. No. <laughs> like, no. So even though her family and authorities believed it was a forgery without any proof of wrongdoing and because Paula was of legal age, they were kind of stuck in a holding pattern. There's not much they could do. So the investigation was terminated. So in 1985, John was using the name John Osborne and he met Lisa Stasi and her infant daughter, Tiffany, who was four months old at the time. John met Lisa and Tiffany at a battered women's shelter in Kansas City. John promised Lisa a job in Chicago. He also promised Lisa daycare help and a place to live. But what he had her do was sign some pieces of blank paper first, which I can only assume being trusting and wanting to get out of the situation and wanting to do better for herself. She put her faith in this man who said he was going to help her. So that's why she signed blank pieces of paper. It's also the seventies. People thought very differently back then. Mm -hmm. Like now somebody is like, can you sign this? I'm like, what is it? They're like, it's a check. No, I mean, can I take it to the bank first? You know, (laughs) Tell, tell me, tell me more about this document. Right. Well, we want to give you a million dollars. Okay. Well, I need to verify that. So we're going to go to the, just people are different now, you know? So Lisa, we don't don't trust like we used to. No, no. And it's because of people like him. The seventies was full of a bunch of bad people. I'm telling you. I mean, every decade is it's just, we find out about them later. Yeah. So unfortunately, Lisa, just like Paula vanishes, but police eventually learn that Tiffany get this. Tiffany was illegally adopted by John's brother and sister-in-law who'd been unable to adopt a baby through traditional channels. John told his brother that Tiffany's biological mother had taken her own life. Now, unbeknownst to them, they had no idea what happened to Lisa. They just know that here comes their brother with this baby and he's, you know what he does? He forges documents. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. So Don and Helen Robinson paid $5,500 to an imaginary attorney and they got, they received Tiffany thinking that this was a legal valid adoption. They even had authentic looking adoption papers with four signatures of two different attorneys and a judge. Talk about some serious forgery skills here. Yeah, this guy was experienced and good at it. Now, this was 1985. Tiffany's identity was confirmed through DNA testing in 2000. So she didn't find out until much later in life what happened. 
1987, 27-year-old Catherine Clampett was hired by John as a secretary. The job required Catherine to travel for business on behalf of John. Okay, I was a secretary one time. I never had to travel for my boss. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of a secretary having to travel for work. Have you? I mean, depends on the secretary. Like government secretary, like secretary of state, they travel all the time. Yeah, this is secretary for a fake hydroponics business. I mean, secretary could just be like right-hand man or woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) apparently this travel was cross-country. So Catherine was a single mom and she left her child with her parents who were rightfully very suspicious of John. And before she left, they warned her to be very careful. John promised Catherine that she was going to travel extensively. He promised her a new wardrobe. I mean, he promised her basically the world. Mm -hmm. And instead, the only promise that he came through with was the promise of an unfulfilled short life. Mm. She was reported missing on June 15th of 1987. John was questioned in this case as well. But just like in the case of Lisa, there was no evidence. So again, the case against him was dropped. In May of 1987, John turned himself in. Now, it's not for what you're thinking. He'd been found guilty on multiple different charges from felony theft, multiple frauds, and parole violations. So John Edward is incarcerated from 1987 to 1993 at Western Missouri Correctional Facility, where he becomes friends with Beverly Bonner. She's 49 years old, and she's the prison librarian. Hmm. So when John was released, now when I say befriended, I add a little wink at the end of that. Mm -hmm. He he befriended Beverly. Befriended. He befriended. So when John is released in 1993, Beverly, his new friend, leaves her husband for John. And she moves to Kansas City to work for him at his hydroponics company, Equi Plus. Well, here's the thing. All the rage. Oh, yeah. I mean, haven't you purchased products from them before? Yeah. So here's the The 80s hydroponics, so big. (laughs) John and Beverly had actually met years earlier because- They'd been employed at the same place in Kansas City. The job that Beverly accepted at John's company was basically heading up the company. Now he's changed the name and he's gone through some things because remember, he's been you know in trouble for fraud and forgery and all this. So his new company is Hydro. Yeah, and he's good about changing names. <laughs> yeah, right? He's good at changing names and details. Yeah. Exactly. So his new company is Hydroglow and the company sold organic vegetables. Beverly packs up and she moves to Florida where the company is headquartered. Beverly's husband, Dr. William Bonner, because they never divorced, she just left him, would occasionally receive a typewritten letter from Beverly as she traveled across the globe. And Beverly would tell him of her assignments in places such as Europe and Australia. William never really felt like he had a reason to doubt the letters and their authenticity, but he did find it a little unusual that Beverly didn't show up to their son's funeral, their son Randy, who died in 1995. William said he assumed she was tending to some important company business. 
I don't know how important that company business is, but if my kid is having a funeral, there is nothing more important. But then again, this is a woman who packed up and left her husband and kid. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there may be some flawed priorities in the hierarchy of needs here. Well, I'm just thinking like as him, I would think, hey, there's no more business more important than our children. But we also know John Edward has a history and I'm sure you can kind of see where it's going. It also feels like maybe the husband was like, ah, she didn't show up, but she left me. So maybe this is better because I don't have to talk about it anymore. Maybe. And that could have been his response. Like, I don't, you know, she left me and I don't really care. I don't want to get into it. So he didn't really put much effort into it. Because there was like, where is she? He's like, ah, she got some business going on. Yeah. But no one's seen Beverly in person since. Mm -hmm. So, of course, with the mid-90s, mid to late 90s comes the internet, which John discovered immediately. So John would roam various sites under the username Slave Master looking for women who enjoyed playing the submissive partner role during sex. Mm -hmm. N walks Sheila Faith in 1994. Sheila had lost her husband in 1991. And as a widow, she was still very lonely. She hadn't really gotten over it. And not only was she still grieving her husband, she had a daughter and her 15 year old daughter, Debbie was wheelchair bound due to spina bifida. That is a malformation of the vertebrae in the spine that exposes the spinal mm-hmm. column and there is no cure for it. The, so while in the while in the womb, the baby's spine does not completely form. Right. So once in a wheelchair, always in a wheelchair. She's she's always going to be confined to a wheelchair. Um, hopefully in the future, there's some medical miracles. But. So John portrays himself to Sheila as a wealthy man who wants to support both Sheila and Debbie. He promised to pay for Debbie's mm-hmm. therapy and he even offered to give Sheila a job. So Sheila fell in love with her shining white knight and she told her friends that she and Debbie were moving in with them. The two moved from Fullerton, California to Kansas City with the help of John and they're never heard from again. John's online popularity in the BDSM community grew. Like it just, he flourished. And in 1999, John and Isabella Luwicka met and Isabella, who was originally from Poland, moved to the United States with her family in 1993. John did what he does. He offered Isabella a job and a bondage relationship. So Isabella leaves her family in Indiana to move with John. John, who was still married to Nancy during all of this, we we forgot about Nancy for a little bit, but they're still married, Mm. gave an engagement ring to Isabella and took her down to the registrar's office and paid for a marriage license. It was never picked up. He paid for it. They never picked it up. Isabella was so proud of her newfound relationship. She called John her husband, whereas John would just tell people that Isabella was his cousin. Isabella was so serious about her relationship with John that she signed a 115 item slave contract that gave John complete control over every aspect of her life, including her bank accounts. Isabella would visit a bookstore called Robert Myers in Oakland Park. And she was such a frequent customer that they they just considered her regularly. She walks in and they're like, hey, Isabella. Yeah. And she would- it's like, 
it's like the bookstore version of Norm. Yeah, exactly. Isabel! Yeah. Or more like, is it? You know, is it? Well, they're probably whispering because it's a bookstore. So like, Isabella, you know. That's right. <laughs> so she would talk, she would have book chats with the owner, Robert. And in July of 1999, Isabella visited the bookstore with John this time. And she introduced him around the store as her husband while she purchased uh, he purchased some items for her. And as they were about to leave, Isabella said to the owner, Robert, that they were moving and that she's like, hey, Robert, it's been real, but I'm not ever going to see you again because we're moving. Yeah. Peace out. She just kind of dropped it. Like it was like a mic drop, like boom. John told a web designer that worked for him that she was caught smoking marijuana and deported. And that's why she was never seen again. So this would be the third or fourth lady who's just never seen again. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Conveniently, Isabella's parents receive a typewritten letter from Isabella describing to them her world travels. Right around the time that Isabella disappears, John meets Suzette Troughton. Suzette is a licensed practical nurse and was experienced in the BDSM scene, particularly in what is called Gorian parties or practices, which means becoming a slave to several masters and the internet was her way to search out these masters. So in 1999, Suzette met a wealthy businessman from Kansas City named JR. Huh. I wonder who that could be. I don't know. Two and two make four. Right. So Suzette and John correspond by email for several months. And you know what? Yeah, you guessed it. He offered her a job. Guy's got jobs like all over the place. We could use a guy like this now. Man. If his employment rate was real, we'd be in good shape, right? Yeah, just giving people jobs left and right. You need a job. You need a job. You need a job. Everybody gets a job. Well, Suzette was a nurse. So the job that he said he had for her was as a nurse for his diabetic father on a trip around the world. Suzette, of course, was intrigued by the offer, but she was like, "Uh, I need to check you out a little bit. So before she accepted, she wanted to spend some time in Kansas City with John and his, or excuse me, JR and his father. So in October, John manages to convince some colleagues to pose as various family members in order to fool Suzette on her visit. After a five-day visit to Kansas, Suzette agrees to accept the job. And on February 14th, she packs up and she moves to Kansas City to begin her new life. So for two weeks, Suzette rented an apartment on John's credit card because he told her that he had to, you know, conclude some business deals before they could begin her new career and the trip as a part of their sexual practices the two would take photos during sessions and she would send them to her friend crystal suzette goes missing march 1st of 2000 but the letters Mm. to crystal keep coming but the tone of the letters the emails change they don't talk about personal things between suzette and crystal anymore and said they talk about how good life was and her amazing new job and her master. Also, all of her emails were signed Suze, which is a nickname that she never personally used for herself. Suzette's mother, Caroline, received a few letters, all typewritten from Suzette. The letters were supposedly mailed from places across the world that she traveled, but they were always postmarked from, where do you think, Adam? I'm I'm, going to go with Kansas City. Yes! Ding, ding, you got it. They were all- Kansas City for 500, Alex, thank you. (laughs) So Suzette's mother said the letters were always mistake-free, which was unlike Suzette. 
So at the end of March, John called Suzette's mom and told her that they were severely disappointed in Suzette. Uh, John told Carolyn that Suzette had run away from him and the job with a man she barely knew after stealing money from him and that he hadn't seen or heard from her since. That's convenient. (sighs) Fortunately for the women on the internet and law enforcement, John started to get cocky, which meant he was getting sloppy. So by 1999, his antics grabbed the attention of two different police departments in Kansas City and Missouri. John, who was a frequent occupant at the Extended Stay America Hotel, police found out that he was he stayed there on a pretty regular basis. And they were told that on his most recent stay of April 23rd, that the woman he was with, they only saw the woman one time and it was while she was photocopying a document. The desk clerk managed to get a look at the document and like was freaked out by it, like completely horrified. It was a slave contract. The hotel notified the police about the document and the unnamed female. They had stayed for five days, after which John sent her back to Dallas. He told his slave to to prepare to move to Kansas. Detective Jack Boyer of the Lenoxa Police Department of Kansas told the hotel to contact him immediately if John returned. John's name began popping up more and more related to missing people investigations because now police departments are starting to, you know, connect and share information where in the seventies, they were not. Mm -hmm. So while searching for information about Suzette Troughton, authorities learned that she and John had stayed at the guest house motel in February. So they immediately searched and they test the room the, the couple had stayed in and they discovered blood. Unfortunately, they couldn't determine whose blood it was. So back in Dallas, the unnamed slave tried to contact John so that he could make good on his promises to her, but she was unable to reach him. He had taken several photographs of her in various compromising positions, including some in bondage. And she wanted those photos from him, but she was unable to reach him. So she reached out to the police. Two officers from Lenexa reached out to speak to her after they were contacted by Dallas authorities. When the detectives heard the details of her story, they passed it along to the FBI. The FBI dun, 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 already had a case file of their own on John. The, the investigation that they had included suspicion of prostitution and white slavery. So on May 19th of 2000, another complaint against John was filed by another slave. She's also unnamed in reports. John again stays at the extended stay in the same room. He liked the room, 120. The un- unnamed slave told police that John repeatedly violated their safety guides. I guess the big thing about BDSM relationships is like, uh, of course, there's a big trust factor, but I guess there's also like safety words and, and code words and things like that. I don't know. I, I, I've never even seen Fifty Shades of Grey. This is just, I'm, yeah. I'm going based on what I have researched in the past not researched from, from just what heard. yeah from what i understand there is there is a very often there is a very outlined contract of what's going to happen what's not going to happen and what right. will happen if things cross lines it's it's very clearly set up ahead of time right so there is no ambiguity exactly but john completely violated this time and time again he had with her as he previously had taken photographs and he beat her. And when she complained, he left. The Lenexa, Kansas PD and the FBI interviewed the unnamed slave. Deciding that John was a dangerous threat, 
Authorities made a decision. All right, it's time to arrest him. So DA Paul Morris approved the arrest warrant on June 2nd of 2000. It was a Friday morning, about 10.15 a.m. Two police officers knocked on John's door and informed him that he was under arrest on the charges of aggravated assault against two women. (laughs) Little did they know, they'd barely hit the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) Nancy's wife was brought in for questioning, but she proved to be no help to the investigation. On June 3rd, a team of detectives and forensics gurus set up shop at John's farm in Lacine, Kansas, and it did not take long at all for cadaver dogs to locate five Mm. large metal barrels on the property. Always the metal barrels. I was just going to say, what's with the metal barrels? (laughs) So the first barrel reveals a naked blonde excuse me, a naked blindfolded and decomposing body in the fetal position. In the second barrel, there was another decomposing body. The bodies were autopsied by Dr. Ronald Hojman. During the course of the weekend, search warrants were secured for two storage lockers that were owned by John Edward. On June 5th, which is a Monday, a group of investigators opened locker E2 and found three more barrels inside. Each barrel was marked rendered pork fat. Kevin Weiner with the Kansas City PD Crime Lab opened the first barrel and inside he found a shoe with a leg still attached. Mm. It's not how shoes are supposed to come. No, they're not. Detective Weiner resealed the barrel and all three of the barrels were sent to Jackson County for autopsy, which was performed by, by Dr. Thomas Young. Missouri DA Chris Coster had a press conference and announced that each of the three barrels found in the storage locker contained a female body. One of the bodies was identified as Suzette Troughton, who had been missing since March 1st. Days later on June 2nd, Beverly Bonner, the second body was identified. On June 13th, John Robinson was charged with five counts of first degree murder for the bodies found in both Kansas and Missouri. Both states would go on to pursue death penalty charges. In Johnson County District Court, he was charged with two counts of murder for the deaths of Suzette and Isabella, along with additional charges of aggravated kidnapping of Suzette. In Cass County in Missouri, John was charged with the murders of Beverly Bonner and the two more still unidentified bodies in the storage locker. Both bodies were later identified by dental records as Sheila and Debbie Faith, the mother and daughter. On July 28th of 2000, additional charges against John were brought when he was charged with the murder of Lisa Stassi, who disappeared in 1985. Remember the second woman that he's responsible for killing and also Mm -hmm. aggravated interference with parental custody in the case of Heather Tiffany Robinson, a.k.a. Tiffany Stassi, his niece. John Edward Robinson was sentenced to death in Kansas in 2002 for the murders of Suzette and Isabella and also received life in prison for the murder of Lisa Stassi. The life sentence was as a result of her murder happening before Kansas reinstated the death penalty. Mm-hmm. In Missouri, prosecutors actively pursued additional charges based on evidence that was discovered in the state. Missouri wanted to extradite him, but his attorneys opposed because of Missouri's, Missouri had much more harsh sentencing and they were much more aggressive in capital punishment cases. So DA Chris Coster of Missouri offered a plea, but insisted that as a condition of any plea deal that John would have to lead authorities to the bodies of Lisa Stassi, Paula Godfrey, and Catherine Clampett. In doing so, it would have implied guilt in Kansas and could have 
and probably could have been used against him. So he declined. Mm -hmm. So it became clear without John's help, the women's remains would not be found. So DA Costa reached a compromise in an extremely well-scripted plea in October of 2003, John Edward Robinson acknowledged that D.A. Coster had enough evidence to convict him of capital murder for the deaths of Paula Godfrey, Catherine Clampett, Beverly Bonner, and Debbie and Sheila Faith. The statement, while technically a guilty plea, worked in Missouri, but since there was no implicit admission, it held no bearing in Kansas. Hmm. So in 2005, Nancy Robinson filed for divorce after 41 years of marriage. She cited irreconcilable differences and incompatibility. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I feel like that has to be a pretty, pretty open and shut case. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, In 2006, Heather Robinson, AKA Tiffany Stassi filed a civil suit against Truman Medical Center in Kansas City and her social worker, Karen Gaddis saying that Karen told John about Lisa and Tiffany when he was looking for underprivileged women for his, quote, home for unwed mothers of white babies. The hospital and Heather reached a settlement in 2007 for an undisclosed sum, and Heather promised her biological grandmother, Patricia Sylvester, a share of the money. In 2001, a book was released called The Internet Slave Master that covered John's life up to the trial. A second book was written about him called Anyone You Want Me To Be, a true story of sex and death on the internet. And it was written by FBI profiler, John Douglas, who, if you've ever watched Mindhunter, you know that the, the FBI profilers and like the, the, B, the BAU, the Behavioral Analysis Unit was like started by him. Oh. It was also, also author Stephen Sinclair. A third book called Depraved by John Glatt was released in 2001. And it was a detailed description of the lives affected by John Edward Robinson's crimes. Cold case on Annie also featured John's case, as did Investigation Discoveries, FBI, Criminal Pursuit, Sins and Secrets, Vanity Fair Confidential, It Takes a Killer, and Deadly Doctors, also Forensic Files, and The New Detectives on Discovery Channel. There you go. John Edward Robinson, who is... is pro, he is prolific. That is... Oh, man. And that he was still married for 41 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I have questions about, come on. As of 2019, he remains on death row in Kansas. Like, death row is not a quick experience. Like, they, they like you to know you're going to die for a long time before they put you to death. Well, you know what? Shouldn't have been killing all those people. Should have stuck with the forgery no. and the embezzlement. How about that? Yeah. Like, how do you go from forgery to embe- and embezzlement to, like, straight up murder and like slave mastering Uh, and like if you see his picture and it will be on our our website like he just looks like a creepy creepy dude he really does he looks like a creep like if he offered me a job i'd be like nah i'm good (laughs) right but in a bad economy Um, people are like hey tell me look i'll eat ramen noodles i'll eat ramen noodles and i can't have gluten that's how much i would not take that job Fair enough. <laughs> that, that is a that that is a very specific, personalized <laughs> reason not to. like that. That was that was both like full disclosure and also like wow, this is this is how much she would not take that job. That's how much I would not. Take I'm it. impressed. But there you go. Yeah. That is the story of the internet's first serial killer.
This is Kevin Armstrong, your host for Movie Battle. Each episode, we take two films and put a super fan of each against one another to decide which one is best. The only rule we have is that you come correct. If you're interested in being a guest on Movie Battle, please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. All right, now it is time for the A side. And this week has been weird for me. Um, it's been weird for <laughs> Not everybody. Not just for you, yeah. No, it's been weird for everybody. Like, we're, we record these on Wednesday, obviously. Uh, and then it's released on Friday. But in the last few days, like Friday of last week, was a full moon. And then Saturday was a blue moon. And also Halloween. And then Sunday was daylight savings time. And then for me, Monday was a anniversary of a thing that happened. And now Tuesday was an election. And so every day has had a lot of stuff. And mm-hmm. I've been really searching for an escape and trying to find, you know, some thing to hold on to to get through this just sort of weird time and then somebody goes and dies oh no and not someone that i knew personally but somebody that i was a huge fan of and then that gets me oh. thinking about all the things that they had done so in this last few days of just international change and big events and the moon doing its thing and time suddenly rolling backwards for one hour uh sean connery passed away and bond there have james bond but and so much more and i started thinking like of all the things that i had seen him in and also how I understood the role of Bond and it kind of clicked because last week we talked about Sherlock Holmes where you've had hundreds of actors play this iconic role but for the role of Bond over the last 70 years there's only been six dudes that have played the role Mm -hmm. and that's kind of amazing. So Sean Connery in and of himself could be an entire episode. Uh, I, I knew him as Bond, but I will never forget him in Highlander or as Indiana Jones' father or in The Rock, which is a highly underrated movie. Uh, I was so excited to see League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and that movie got such bad ratings that Sean Connery stopped at stopped acting. Like that was his last movie. Is that really? Yeah. It 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 went so badly and it was it was such incredible source material is based on a graphic novel by Alan Moore and it should have been perfect. But the American studio tried to americanize it and make it a, an action movie when it was really more of a mystery and there were it was never supposed to be the movie it became and that was from everything i've read the reason he stopped acting and it it breaks my heart because it was a great graphic novel and he was the perfect 
person to play the lead character and it could have been so good but it never should have been a blockbuster movie it should have been a hbo series and it would have been so much better hbo so does it right they do and it, it it breaks my heart a little bit that that was it went so badly that he stopped acting but when i thought about Sh- sean connery and then he has been so good in so many things i mean there are movies that aren't action movies like like finding forrester where he is he is quite good and he, i mean the untouchables like he, like he has an entire career but i started to think about my very complicated relationship with james bond and that comes back more to i never like i talked with my folks today and my dad remembers going to the theater to see dr no way back when it came out but for me i experienced james bond because of tbs and tnt and all of these cable networks that would buy these old movies and just play them all the time. That's where I first saw James Bond. And then I was in this weird sort of donut hole of adolescence and James Bond movies. So Timothy Dalton was the 80s James Bond. He had two movies. One came out in 87, 86. One came out in 89. And then nothing really happened until 1995 when the James Bond of my adolescence existed. And that was Pierce Brosnan. Goldeneye, which turned into, for my generation, more than just a movie. It also spawned, quite frankly, the greatest video game, multiplayer video game ever. And without the multiplayer mode on GoldenEye on the N64, we wouldn't have Call of Duty. We wouldn't have League of Legends or even like, uh, uh, what's the other one with everyone runs around, uh, not Kickstarter. Oh God, I feel so old right now. Oh my goodness. So everybody, it's, any game where you have a bunch of people playing and they're all fighting each other and trying to see who wins, uh, that's all based on Goldeneye. Oh my goodness. We're gonna, I'm actually gonna look this up. I can't believe like my brain is not working right now. Because all I can keep saying is Kickstarter and it's not Kickstarter. It's like the most popular game in the world right now and has been for years and people will watch Call of Duty? Call of Duty, but then the, ah, this is the one where like you can like build stuff and you all drop in the same... Is it the one where they yeah, dance? Yeah, the dancing it? one. Fortnite. Fortnite! Holy mother of biscuit. <laughs> oh my goodness. I just... I'm so old. I couldn't remember Fortnite. So, Fortnite doesn't exist without Goldeneye. And Goldeneye was the first like multiplayer. We're all in the same place. We're trying to kill each other and somebody's going to win. It was amazing. And Pierce Brosnan was amazing. But it started making me think about Bond and how sort of that character has evolved and changed over the years. And so I started to do a little research because I was like, okay, obviously the older 
Bond ones with, you know, Sean Connery and Roger Moore and even George Labanzi, they they were definitely way more violent, right? Because like it was very so now the new ones are more nuanced. Yeah. Uh, and no, it turns out that the Bond who kills the most people per movie. Daniel Craig, isn't it? Mm, no. Pierce Brosnan. Oh. Like, like he is the most violent of Bonds. Daniel Craig is actually on the low end. Oh, wow. Like, his movies are much more like... So, I have seen... There are 24 Bond movies, and I have Ooh. seen at least 20. I don't remember all of the Timothy Dalton ones... The Roger Moore ones are mostly forgettable, but so it's hard because he did seven. So it's like, did I see that or did I sleep through it? I don't know. <laughs> but the one of my favorites has always been the George Labanzi's on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And because it was an entirely different style of Bond. It was serious. He gets married. His wife dies. It is sad. It is intense. Like you all start to understand, like, why is this guy seemingly a psychopath? Oh, because the main bad guy who's been haunting him for years literally waited until he got married and then shot his wife. Okay. This guy's going to, this is going to give some background to his psychosis. And the Daniel Craig movies much better fit that George Labanzi on Her Majesty's Secret Service style where this is a very tortured man. Like Sean Connery never seems tortured. He kind of seems like he's having a fun. He's having fun with it. Like he's, he's cool. He's going through this. Yeah, he's cool. He's smooth. Roger Moore is like the weird uncle, but like it's working. Like he's always like Roger Moore actually kisses more women in uh, Bond movies than anybody else. Which I guess it was the six. It was the seventies and eighties. So like late 70s 80s so that was okay mm-hmm. uh but evidently he's the biggest ladies man uh all, only thing that daniel craig does better than any other bond is drive fast <laughs> like his cars go super fast and he drives like a maniac uh pierce brosnan is the bond that kills the most people which okay. is very weird mm-hmm. uh and then sean connery in sort of a classic sean connery moment uh, his movies, because he was the first, and the first movie was made for like pennies, not pennies, but comparative pennies. Right. Uh, the return on investment for the first Bond movie was 2,469%. Wow. So Pierce Brosnan is the least return on investment, and he, he only made. Two hundred and fifty nine percent on ever versus the budget versus all of his movies, whereas Sean Connery made two thousand plus percent on what he was paid. Sure, uh, Sean Connery. Sean Connery was also so good that Ian Fleming, who is the is the writer who wrote all of the the James Bond novels, wrote. After he saw Sean Connery play James Bond, he changed the origin of the character to having a Scottish background. Oh, wow. He was like, okay, this guy is so good. I'm going to write this into the character. And the name James Bond 
was Ian Fleming's orthodontist. <laughs> he picked it because he was like, this is the most nondescript, not exciting name ever. And the family evidently got a kick out of it because they were like, okay, cool, whatever. Like, this is funny. We'll tell everybody this at like cocktail parties. And then Ian Fleming felt bad, kind of. And he wrote them and he said, hey, whatever you guys want to do, you could always use the name Ian Fleming in any way you want. (laughs) Because I kind of stole your dad's name. So your family can use my name whenever you want to. And uh, you could write it in anything. And I'm never going to... I'm never going to be upset. But upset by what? That's a cool thing. Yeah, it is. But, you know, some people don't. Like, I can imagine every time somebody went to that orthodontist, they were like, oh, Bond, huh? James Bond. <laughs> and the orthodontist is like, yeah, no, no, that was actually me. It's cool. Uh, but that's fine. Whatever. That uh, was me first. sit down in the chair. And <laughs> it was me first. That's, that's where it came from. Uh, you should probably uh, pay me more money. So, of the 24 films, and this is also interesting because the 25th film has now been delayed three times. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to come out last spring. It was supposed to come out this October. Now they're saying it's going to be next spring. This is probably the last Bond film with Daniel Craig. Uh, it will be his uh, fifth one, which will put him past Pierce Brosnan but still behind Connery and Roger Moore in terms of times playing Bond. Uh, it has seemingly an incredible villain, uh, Rami Malek, who is a just over-the-moon actor. Uh, he won an Oscar for his portrayal of Freddie Mercury. Uh, his work in uh, uh, Mr. Robot is amazing. Uh, he's also the Pharaoh from uh, both of the uh, Night of the Museum movies. Yeah. So, like the man, the man has rage, uh, and they tried so hard to make him not look adorable. They gave him like prosthetic, like so he has like a scarred face, uh, but he still looks adorable. So it's going to be really hard. Like we're supposed to hate him, but I don't know if we're going to be able to. Uh, and so it's. It's been delayed, but it was supposed to come out again, like basically before Thanksgiving was supposed to be the next Bond movie. So of all the Bond movies, the most money that any of them has made officially was Skyfall in 2012, when it made worldwide a billion dollars. But People have looked back and said, adjusting for inflation, that if you go all the way back to Thunderbolt in 1965, the amount of money that it made then, if you adjust for inflation, would have been well over a million dollars. So even as this franchise has been around for going on 70 years now, 60, 70 years, And the most famous of all Bonds, Sean Connery, has recently left us. The most profitable film adjusted for inflation of the entire series after 24 movies, soon to be 25, with six different actors, was the third movie they ever did, Thunderbolt, in 1965. And if there's anything that can speak to the timelessness of the character, but also the timelessness of how Sean Connery portrayed him. Like, 
I feel like if you randomly pulled, like you walked down the street and you were like, hey, who's the first person you think of as James Bond? Most people are going to say Sean Connery. And maybe that's a bit of hopefulness on my part because he hasn't done a Bond movie in 40 years. But he was the most iconic. He was the most profitable. And he's the only one who has ever really had a career outside of Bond of all the actors. So this is uh, not... Now, don't you go knocking Daniel Craig's performance in Knives Out. No, no, no. That was... No, seriously. Knives Out was my second favorite movie of, of 2019. It was an amazing film. I watched it as a comfort thing several times during COVID because uh, you cannot watch Jojo Rabbit as a comfort movie because it's not comforting. But that's why it no, was No, the but best there movie are some funny year. parts in it. Oh, Jojo Rabbit's amazing. There's some very funny parts, but it's also not the type of thing I'm like, well, I can't sleep tonight. So let's turn on a movie about Nazis. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's rough. But Daniel Craig has had a very, a very good career. Pierce Brosnan has had a good career. Timothy Dalton uh, got paid. Uh, Roger Moore did some other stuff. But no one ever has had the success after Bond like Sean Connery. And if you have never watched the Bond Sean Connerys or the Sean Connery Bonds, either way, Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yep. Uh, I highly recommend that you step back and you watch them. It's 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 going to get misogynist. You got to know that going in. Like, you know, that it's going to be sexist. It's going to be a well, lot of unprotected sex. Time. It was a very different time. But it also, every time you watch those movies, you'll be like, wait, I know this theme from every other movie I've seen before or, or since about action movies and spies. Or I here's this thing that I thought was part of this movie, but no, it's just an homage back to another movie that I've seen before. And I hope that some people will look at Sean Connery's catalog and watch more Bond movies and appreciate them for their time period and what they are. Uh, it sucks that it takes something like someone passing to have that happen, but if the only bond you know has been the one like me, like I only knew bond pretty much as Pierce Brosnan, because that's when I went to the movie theater as a kid, but I learned about Sean Connery and Roger Moore, even George Labanzi through cable TV, which thank God, because without that, I probably would have missed a lot. Um, I highly recommend that maybe in this time period we're turning to where it's a little bit colder outside and we can't do all the things we want to do and we have a little bit of extra time uh, and we're looking for things to binge or things to look at go back and watch Dr. No or Thunderbolt or one of the early Sean Connery James Bond movies and go in with open eyes knowing it's going to be weird it's going to be sexist misogynist be a different time but also go in with open eyes knowing that this is the seeds of an entire genre of movie that without these moments, which quite frankly, weren't supposed to happen because no one thought this was going to work. We wouldn't have so many of the movies that we've had for the last 40 years. So 
as we remember Sean Connery, uh, I mean, go watch the the Rock. Welcome to the Rock. That's a great line. Never like I've said that to people, and no one understands what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I've quoted that, and people are like, "Okay, this isn't a Rock." And you're like, ah, oh, "Okay, fine, all right, fine." You missed my but and uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is arguably the best Indiana Jones period uh, because of his and Harrison Ford's interactions. But if you really have never seen a true Sean Connery, James Bond movie, please go and watch one of them soon. Cause I think you'll be delighted. You'll giggle. You'll guffaw. You'll probably be a little bit annoyed. Wow. You said guffaw. I did. Yeah. You know, I, I worked it into my, uh, podcast so it could cross it off the word of the day list so mm, gotcha yeah you know i i like crossing things off lists <laughs> but yeah go uh sean connery's got a lot of stories in the last couple of days uh since he passed but if you've never seen him in his true iconic role uh please do so and if you watch league of extraordinary gentlemen read the graphic novel by alan moore and you'll understand how good that could have been. And don't blame Sean Connery uh, for it not being good. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap it up, just want to say again, thank you for coming along with us on this incredible journey. Because each week we both look forward to it. And it's just been so much fun for us. And you can check out our website. It's asidebsidepodcast.square.site. Brand new site. It's been up less than a month. Uh, new merch, holiday stuff coming up this by the time this podcast is out. Also, because my mom wanted something a little less murdery, we got a different sweatshirt that's going to be out there, plus some holiday stuff. Again, Adam, something. As soon as you see it, you'll know it's for you. Yay. <laughs> also I, lo I love that your mom requested something a little less murdery <laughs> right. not completely not murdery but just like less murder a little less blood you know so i don't feel bad wearing it not completely not murdery just not bloody yeah just less murdery like <laughs> like you know we we didn't plan this murder it's more of a crime of passion <laughs> It's like, can we, can we go from felony murder to manslaughter? <laughs> we would love it 100% if you would follow us on Facebook, like our Instagram, subscribe on Spotify, Apple, give us a rating, give us a, you know, um, a review. We would love it. And thank you so much. And, and I think one of the coolest things about this week is that the B-side was prompted by people's responses. I know it was so much fun to put that out there and get the feedback. So uh, we'll do that again soon. Of course, since I put three out there, I've, I've got the next lineup for the next week, you know, next yeah. week we'll have the uh, socialite slayer, but man, thank you so much. It's so cool. Like I got so excited when everybody was like responding and I got DMS, I got replies, I got text messages. It was so much fun. So thank you. Yeah. So keep that coming. Like if you have a story or, I know like true crime is, is definitely gets more responses, but like, if you have a movie that you were like, Hey Adam, do you remember this movie? Or like, Hey, 
what about this TV show? Like Wings was great. Why don't you talk about that ever, dude? And I'd be like, you're right. I should talk about Wings more. I did like uh, Wings. So, Wings is great. It really is good. We could do an entire episode of Wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have a true crime story or something about media that you want to you want to hear us talk about, um, it makes it that much more exciting when there's that little bit of connection. So don't hesitate to send us your ideas, uh, your complaints, your your comments. Um, I mean, if you want to compose a song, we're not going to say no. Not at all. All right. You can email us to a side, B side podcasts with an S at gmail.com. Thanks, Adam. Yeah. Thank you, Brooke.